0: You want to give to your partner everything that they want, so that's the enabling thing that happens sometimes, where people give too much of themselves and let themselves be extinguished, and then once they're extinguished, they're no longer erotically interesting to the partner, so then they get thrown out.
1: Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and sex in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is a psychiatrist, therapist, writer, and Buddhist. He is known for bringing Buddhist philosophy to Western psychotherapy and has written numerous books integrating the ideas of Buddha and Freud and synthesizing complicated concepts into practical advice for his readers. He is well known for his books that include Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, and his most recent book, Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself. He graduated from Harvard College and then Harvard Medical School, and now has a private practice in New York City. We are honored to have him as our guest
2: today. Welcome, Mark Epstein. Thank you. So how did you become interested in Buddhism?
0: In college, my first semester in college, I had no idea that I was heading in this direction, but I... Uh, I met a girl the first week of school who was taking an introduction to world religion class uh, and I decided oh that sounded good. Um, A romantic interest? A romantic interest yeah so I followed her to the introduction to world religion class and the first semester of the class was Eastern religion and the second semester was Western religion and the Eastern religion part of it was all about Buddhism. And the stuff we were reading like hit something in me that lasted longer than the relationship with the uh, with the girl unfortunately, um, but uh, that stayed with me and there were there was a lot of um, uh, there were a lot of doorways into Buddhism at Harvard in those days, so for a couple of years, I was every course that I took that in any way related. Uh, I, I started to follow up on. And that led me down a long path that, uh, you know, ended up with me here.
1: Yeah. So then you pursued medical school, which yeah. is very different than Buddhism. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you kind of bridge the two together?
0: Well, I was, um, it took me a long time, uh, at least it seemed a long time in those years to come to the medical school part of things. I, I uh, went as deep into Buddhism as I could. Um, I ended up going out to a place called Naropa Institute in Boulder which was just starting in 1974 it was uh, when I was still in college and I met all these American Buddhist teachers who were about 10 years older than me who had already been to Asia they were in the Peace Corps in the 60s and met various Asian Buddhist teachers and then come back to America and they were starting to teach And I was like their first student, or one of their first students. Um, And then I traveled with them throughout uh, Southeast Asia, met their teachers, and then realized that I was going to have to do something with my life. Um, And I had grown up. uh, My father was a a physician, first at Yale and then at Harvard. He always wanted me to be a doctor. I was like, no, you know, maybe I could be a therapist of some sort, but I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, But at that point, uh, something in me uh, became willing, Um, I think because I had found the Buddhist thing that meant so much to me, so I sort of had my own uh, ground. And then, oh, yeah, I could, I could do medical school, I said to myself. So um, I, I took all the pre-med courses that I hadn't taken in college as a, you know extra year and then uh, applied to medical school, went to India for a year or for part of a year, and then started medical school when I came back with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist. So I think I was one of two people in the class who uh, 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 went in with that, uh, with that notion.
2: What was it about Buddhism that resonated with you at that time? And also, how did you see yourself changing from the time that you first were exposed to it yeah. and kind of through throughout, you know, your what sounds like your early 20s and when you were going to medical school? Yeah. How was it impacting you? I
0: think uh, you know that the first thing I read about Buddhism that that sort of um, flipped a switch for me was all about Uh, How the untrained mind is anxious, Uh, you know, that it's like a fish flapping on dry ground. I remember that phrase. And I think there was, I had a fair amount of anxiety. I wasn't crippled by anxiety, but I was very conscious of my anxiety. And, you you know, uh, confident, but also insecure and insecure in um, uh, in my social relationships a little bit. Um, so I think this idea of that there was something I could do for myself, uh, taking my own mind in hand, so to speak, um, that grabbed a hold of me and sort of gave me a way into myself. Because I think I was uh, I was good uh, uh, with other people in a certain way, but kind of, but didn't really know who I was. Um, I think that's a fair statement uh, so Buddhism like gave me a way in is what I would say um, and then it also uh, uh, opened me up to uh, a whole group of other people who I liked who were pursuing it so when I went to Naropa it was like the whole New York art world was also at Naropa you know uh, poet, beat poets and dancers and visual artists and uh, so it was like uh, you know, the curtains were parting in front of me, and Buddhism was part of that for me, and ended up bringing me to New York, actually,
1: and probably a much smaller world back then.
0: It seemed huge to me, but uh, <laughs> but there weren't a lot of you know there were books written by. Uh, uh, a couple of uh, a British or German ex-monks, but there wasn't a whole plethora of like self-buddhist self-help yet. Because now it's
1: become such a popular. Now it's
0: now it's like yeah. you know I don't know if I'd be into it now. You know,
1: right. if you had yes. discovered it now. If I discovered
0: it now, I it might be too. I might be too uh, uh, I think it was too uh, low level or something. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Well, Buddhism is, I mean, it's certainly something that's incorporated into our culture, but I think a lot of people don't really necessarily know what it means yeah. or what it is. sort of like, oh, mindfulness, that term is thrown around yeah, a lot. Yeah, mindfulness but kind of has like, sort of well, really, it? really
0: entered. It's not a great word, mindfulness, but...
1: Well, and it's kind of also been co-opted by businesses and the tech world yeah, to sort of right. a way to optimize your work and your professional life, yeah. which seems like it kind of takes away from the core of Buddhist philosophy. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, one of, one of the uh, teachers of mine in college who drove me towards Buddhism or kind of opened it up for me was a fellow named Daniel Goleman. Who was, he was a graduate student in a psychology course I was taking, uh, and he went on to become the psychology writer for The Times, and then he wrote this book, Emotional Intelligence, which uh, actually is what uh, helped bring mindfulness into the business world. Um, because, you know, he was, but he was a, um, D- Dan- Daniel Goleman's a great figure in uh, interpreting Buddhist psychology for the West, and he didn't really have any business experience, but he could, he was a good journalist, and he could take the concepts, the Buddhist concepts, which are basically about, uh, you know, emotionally, we tend to act out with uh, without uh, the ability to really... Um, Know what we're doing or regulate our frustration, or, you know, in some sense, our emotions. I quibble with this interpretation because I'm, as a therapist, I'm kind of pro emotion. And there's a way that the Buddhists can clamp down on emotion or on desire. You know, there's a way of interpreting Buddhism that uh, where the first noble truth, you know, of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Suffering's not such a good translation. It, it should be more like there's a, a tinge of unsatisfactoriness in life, even though there's so many pleasures. But the pleasures can't last the way we want them to last. So even when we're happy, we're conscious of how uh, uh, impermanent it all is. So there's an undercurrent of suffering. And then there's a common translation of the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering is desire. Which I think is also a, a sort of low-level interpretation, but that gets used to clamp down on emotion. Whereas the, you know, a, a, a more uh, um, uh, a clearer understanding of, wh- of what they're saying is that the cause of suffering or of the unsatisfactoriness is uh, a kind of craving that, that the ego has for comfort and security. That makes us clamp onto or cling to things that can't give us that ultimate satisfaction that we're searching for. So uh, um, uh, the, the the teachings of Buddhism are about establishing a kind of inner equilibrium that lets you take care of yourself when the world is disappointing you. And I found that very helpful.
2: Can you talk about how that? plays out with relate with regard to romantic relationships because I think this piece around clinging on yeah. to the other because yeah. we expect that they're going to be able to
0: totally take care of us take or care satisfy, of us, us, satisfy us or, yeah. meet
2: all our needs um and in a sense save us yeah. from ourselves yeah um and our own
1: discomfort yes. around desire and, yeah and yearning and longing for something and that kind of feeling of being out of control yeah
0: well, there's a lot to talk about there. I tried to write about this. I, I wrote a book called "Open to Desire," uh, that uh, that was uh, not one of my more successful books in a commercial sense, but where I was trying to take on the generic Buddhist, uh, you know, Eastern. Uh, clamping down on desire as something that we have to get rid of, you know attachment as something that uh, uh, is an impediment you, you know in Western psychology, as I know, you know attachment is a good thing if uh, If a child is not attached enough, then they feel empty, then they can 't have healthy romantic relationships and so on. So I was trying to rescue desire from the Buddhists in this uh, in this book by saying we need desire. Desire is what brings us not just to our romantic relationships but also to our spiritual lives. You know, there's a yearning inside of all of us for some kind of completion or some kind of rapport or some kind of affirmation or some kind of acknowledgement that we do w- and that we are relational beings that's a, a core teaching of Buddhism actually, we don't exist the way we think we do as a, an isolated, independent entity locked up in ourselves we're actually always in relationship with the world and with each other So, rom- and that gets um, channeled in romantic relationships, so I'm I'm all for romantic relationships uh, and, and um but, as we know from the psychotherapy world, transference is everywhere, not just between. A patient and their therapist where they transference is where you impose your unresolved unworked through early relationships on your significant other so in therapy you tend to impose it on your therapist like maybe my therapist will save me the way my parents couldn't or will know me the way my parents didn't or maybe my therapist is making me angry the way my parents did Well, we tend to superimpose all of that on our romantic partners also. And um, what we know from therapy and a little bit from Buddhism is that if you're not conscious of what's happening inside of you, you tend to act out uh, what's unresolved in you. So um, that happens in romantic relationships where uh, we... we tend to act out that which we haven't really looked at or made sense of or metabolized or digested in ourselves. We'll impose that on whoever we're involved with, and that's how people get into trouble with each other because then we're not really relating to the other as themselves. We're relating through some screen of projections, uh, and inevitably then the person is going to disappoint us. And there's enough disappointment in real life that we don't have to uh, superimpose, you know, extra added disappointment. But I think that's how people get in big trouble with each other. Or one way. There's a million ways.
1: So it sounds like, I mean, on the one hand, psychotherapy really encourages insight into being able to kind of recognize that. But Buddhism maybe takes a more kind of mindfulness approach of being aware.
0: Well, Buddhism... I think, is sort of um, weak on the relationship aspect of life, um, because for a long time it was practiced in an intensive meditative way, anyway, in monasteries, uh, primarily male monasteries, um, where the you know, homosexuality was not acknowledged but was probably rampant because people's sexual, relational, erotic needs don't go away, you know but um, uh, until Buddhism came to the West I think there was um, little opportunity for the wisdom that's inherent to Buddhism to try to be applied in our relational lives so I think that's a big challenge for us uh, and it's really just been a short time that Buddhism has been exerting any kind of influence. So I don't really know uh, how much uh, help it's going to be. But it's been a help to me, um, specifically around um, desire and, and, as you were asking about before, the uh, the wish that many of us have for our partners to be able to... Uh, um, Satisfy all of the longings that we bring to our relationships and one thing I've learned from Buddhism is to allow the, uh, the space of the unfulfilled longing to linger, you know to become a kind of interesting object of contemplation rather than just a frustration that we have to get rid of um there's a very good book that you might know about by a poet named Anne Carson called Eros the Bittersweet, uh where she she um uh, translated Sappho and so on from the Greek she's a Greek scholar and then a contemporary poet but uh, she said the word the Greek word for bittersweet is actually uh, goes the other way it's sweet bitter that the the sweetness comes first but then there's like this leftover piece where uh, not you know doesn't last quite long enough not quite what it was the last time you know this little bit of bitterness so I think from the Buddhist side that space of bitterness which is a lot about internal frustration or longing or the ego's wish that it could disappear completely uh in love you know uh that space becomes interesting
2: so it's having some curiosity about the bitterness some curiosity as opposed to fighting against it, or having it take over.
0: Yes, as opposed to a kind of instinctive acting out of the bitterness, which becomes like an aggressive response, or a passive withdrawal, or, a you know, internal frustration or something.
1: And I think so much of people's struggle is not just the actual feeling that's kind of uncomfortable, but then the, the kind of thoughts imposed on those feelings, mm-hmm. feeling critical that you're feeling that way in the first place, which sort of enhances and like compounds the suffering, yeah and people spiral out <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> right well right. What, well, from the psychoanalytic world, one thing i 've learned or, or there 's words for something that maybe I had felt is that in love and certainly in sex the, there 's a um, uh, an aggressive uh, almost oral kind of wish to devour. Or incorporate the other, you, you know, uh, completely to, you, you know, out of w- what. Um, one of the psychoanalysts who's influenced me was a British child analyst named uh, Donald Winnicott, who talks about the ruthless love of the infant for the mother. But that you 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 feel that in sex a lot. This sort of ruthless wish to take over the other completely, which is obviously impossible. You, you know, w- one of my favorite. Lines about that is that uh, the the other provides a body which can be penetrated, but a consciousness which is impenetrable. So that the impossibility of totally devouring the consciousness of the other, you know, and then the willingness to allow the other to remain in some sense unknown and therefore erotically. Um, uh, uh, stimulating, you know, because of their unknownness. I think Buddhism ca- uh, can help in giving language uh, to that possibility and therefore keeping the, the theater of uh, erotic uh, life open in, a, in an ongoing way.
1: It's also what really holds the tension. If you really were to consume the other person, yeah. then they would just be you, and they wouldn't be interesting anymore. Exactly,
0: right? exactly. But then that's the the, the ego's wish for, uh, you know, permanence and solidity and security and so on. The, is trying to do that, you, you know. And then if it comes close to succeeding, then it's all alone again, you know. So right, it's that delicate balance yeah. between the two. Yeah. But a lot of times, partners, you you know, you, you want to give to your partner everything that they want. So that's the enabling thing that happens sometimes where people give too much of themselves and let themselves be extinguished. And then once they're extinguished, they're no longer erotically interesting to the partner. So then they've given themselves completely and then they get thrown out.
1: Something we really value at Lovelink is the ability to tune into our partners. This can be incredibly challenging between work, friends, television, and everything else life throws at us. It is completely natural to feel distracted and forget to focus in on the person we love most. NON is a sound meditation app for the iPhone that can help facilitate slowing down and connecting. Spelled N-O-N, it comes from the concept of non-duality, meaning not divided, oneness. What makes the NON app unique is that it isn't a collection of pre-recorded music. Instead, non-produces each sound note by note, making no two sessions ever alike. This lack of familiarity means you can approach each session unclouded by expectation, forever keeping your attention purely in the moment. Set the timer, sit with your lover, and meditate. Download non-today in the iPhone app store.
2: So how do you help... Patients who come to see you specifically for issues around sexuality and romantic relationships, and and also you know helping them to think about this bitterness that they have in a different way. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't know that I help anyone so much around this. This oh. is a this is a difficult thing to help anybody with. But uh, but I think too. Um, to open up the conversation in this kind of way that we're doing here, cause that these so that these kinds of feelings, which are mostly inchoate in a way, you know, like unspoken, un, even unsymbolized, you, you know, um, I, I've tried to develop some kind of language for all of this, so that feelings that people are carrying that are very private. And that are hard to even talk to their partners about uh, that we can develop some way of having a, a, you know, stimulating conversation helpful conversation about it so that the, the, the exchange in therapy becomes a kind of interpersonal meditation where language gets put on experiences that otherwise can only be dreamed or, or, uh, or can only be acted out so I'm trying to help people like, pause in that way that, that meditation has helped me and that therapy can help uh, you know, pause before destroying uh, that which you care so much about, but which is also frustrating you. So, but sometimes people just have to get out of the relationships, and then, uh, and then I try to help them do that because they, you know, they could have something better.
2: Another thing I'm thinking about is our egos can get so caught in the more concrete realm like with a partner you know how much money are they making um, just uh, what do they expect out of life what do what do they feel like their role is in the relationship parenting all of these yeah. kind of more concrete things and I'm wondering how you how people can reconcile their more concrete ego needs or what they think are their ego needs versus this non-attachment and and connection and connection yeah and connection right yeah and true true connection and true need
0: I mean I think uh, um, one of the things that makes a relationship uh, work is when the people are different you know so that they're learning from each other and they're exposed to aspects of the world that the other person, you know, knows and embodies and can bring into their lives so that that, that's a real sharing. At the same time, you know, there's this concept of the, the ego ideal where you feel incomplete in yourself and the other person represents you know has this thing that you don 't have that you want to merge with in order to feel complete, so sometimes like the the other person 's money or the other person 's beauty or the other person 's talent or the other person 's success is something that you that you you 're wishing for in yourself, but you can 't find it in yourself, but you see it in them and then you glom onto to the thing in them. So then that matters more than who the person actually is. And then if they uh, if they lose their money or if they lose their looks or if they're not as successful as you thought, then they're not feeding you in the way that you needed because it was never really about them. Um, so then that's a problem. So, But that can be hard to distinguish which thing is which. Right. I'm
1: also wondering what your thoughts are, you know, when you're when you fall in love and there's this sense that you kind of lose yourself. Yeah. Or maybe you're looking for someone else to complete you. Yeah. And um and that can be a really dysregulating experience because you feel like this other person is kind of helping to define you. And I'm just sort of curious about what a Buddhist or what a from a Buddhist perspective might say about that because that seems really relevant. To yeah. what Buddhism teaches yeah. about the self and no self
0: yeah well I believe in falling in love I, I believe that it's a real thing and that it can be sustained you know for a um, for a, for a lifetime even uh, in Buddhism in the they have these teachings in in uh, Uh, Tibetan Buddhism specifically called Highest Yoga Tantra, which which is like where instead of seeing the world as like a a place you have to escape from, that you start to see this world, this very reality as already an enlightened universe. Um, And they, uh, they take the experience of falling in love, which they divide into four stages, of looking where you make eye contact, smiling where you smile at each other, looking smiling embracing which needs no definition and and orgasm those are the four stages of falling in love and they use those four stages as the model for what can be experienced in highest yoga tantra you, you know because the experience of falling in love they say is the closest you can come in regular life to uh, where the meditations when you know when done when taken to Uh, um, almost perfection, you know, where where that will take you. So I think, so that that, uh, um, uh, was really a wonderful thing for me to discover because it sort of gave me permission, you know, to look at those experiences in regular life as uh, um, spiritually worthy as well as, uh, you know, every other way that we think about it. Um, So I think that experience of losing yourself in love When you first fall in love Is also an experience of Replenishment You you know You don't just lose yourself You're also filled with uh, With with love for the other So I always face this thing with patients Who uh, Come feeling like They have to love themselves more You know Like this uh, uh, self love is the first step and i I always say it 's impossible to love yourself like we don 't even know ourselves like how can you love yourself, but you can love somebody else and the experience of loving another person like is such a relief at least it was for me that oh yes i you know i 'm capable of this kind of love, and that settled some some uh Discomfort that I had always had with myself, you know, not knowing if I could or what I, you know, who I was, you know, once I could feel myself in love, then uh, uh, that was a huge relief. So uh, I I think that's a valid experience.
2: And sometimes... Um, it is a relief to to discover that you are capable of that kind of yeah. love, and sometimes it's immensely anxiety provoking yeah. too. Well, it
0: makes the ego uncomfortable. If you're if you're, if the ego is trying to um, maintain its hegemony, you know, if it's trying to maintain its position of control, then love. Like silence also like that 's why people have trouble with meditation but but love is is immensely dysregulating, as you said before it 's unnerving, like who am I, and where do I stop in the other and you, you know but that 's very good for the ego because the, the the ego at its best is able to relinquish control, you know we need it, but we don 't need it all the time, so the merger that happens. Uh, is uh, is like uh, deep sleep. You, you know, we don't have to be maintaining our identity all the time either. In fact, every day we go to sleep and we let go of it. You know, um, and that's what the ego needs. And love provides one way of uh, allowing that coming and going. People get attached uh, in a Buddhist negative way. People get attached to the feeling of merger. You, you know, I see that a lot from patients. Um, where it's
1: a great feeling.
0: It's a great feeling. But like, I I had someone in my office the other day who, uh, a young youngish woman, but in a new, relatively new relationship, who was saying, "Oh, we we make love every day," uh, and I was like, "Really?" <laughs> and, and she was complaining that maybe her um, boyfriend was getting, you know, was pulling back a little bit, but it, but there was a, a, I thought some way that. It wasn't just about sex—the needing to make love every day—that she was in the way I was talking about before. That there was a, um, a a kind of clinging for security, a need to be close. That was that sex was providing, but that it wasn't just about the sex, and she was in danger of kind of pushing the husband or the boyfriend away um, by by you know her own neediness for that. So I was trying to say something like that to her we'll say that
2: doesn't feel good for the other the, being on the receiving end of that doesn't feel good that you something is being taken or controlled
0: it's sort of a traditionally a traditional thing that it's the the man who's demanding it all the time because it's the only way that the man can get his uh, needs for affection met other than drinking um uh, but it was, seemed to be flipping around a little bit in this generation, so I thought that was interesting, too. But I think it's the same. You, you know, it's so easy to transfer all of our needs into, into sex and then to act it out on the other, and, and then that's hard to bear.
1: Some of what you're talking about also reminds me of what you talk about in your recent book, Advice Not Given, A Guide to Getting Over Yourself, mm-hmm. and really... Being able to kind of let go of some of these ego attachments and sort of think outside yourself, and I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that message and and how getting over yourself might be helpful in relationships.
0: Well, that that uh, speaks to what I was trying to say before that the that we need our egos. You know, the ego comes into being around the age of three or four when the intellect. Uh, Uh, develops enough that we start to be conscious of oh I'm a separate person and that's my mother and that's my father and I have to relate to them in different ways and then I have to go to school and and I'm dreaming and I and uh, I'm hungry and so the ego is all about taking care of yourself and managing the pressures that come from both inside and outside So we have to develop one. If we don't, then it's too hard to cope with the world. Um, But then uh, it becomes very easy to be totally identified with the ego, to kind of let it take over. Uh, And then relationships come along, intimate relationships, where... Uh, actually, for the relationship to work, the egos the mutual egos have to keep dissolving, you know losing their boundaries and merging and then pulling back and so then the the task of the ego is uh, um, uh, evolves it's not like the ego didn't have to uh, dissolve. Uh, previously that's what play as a child is about that's what fantasy is about even when watching tv or reading or playing video games the ego is losing itself for a bit but to do it relationally is putting another demand on the ego doesn't really know how to do that so well Um, and uh, but it's immensely gratifying to get over yourself, you know, to to have to stay in a position where you're trying to control the other because the ego wants control, the ego wants security, the ego wants to be told how great it is, and the ego is inherently insecure because it doesn't really exist, it, you know, but it's trying all the time to oh yeah, I'm really here, you, you know, and I really matter and you have to affirm that for me. So, Life gets so much easier when you learn uh, that in giving to the other, uh, you you actually are fed in a different way than you imagined you had to be. And you know relationships can teach us that as as can therapy, as can meditation sometimes.
2: I think it's a really important message, especially for young people in our culture, and particularly now with social media and online dating, where people are so focused on projecting something into the world about their own ego, and they're so focused on receiving... um, you know, compliments from other people, or matching with somebody, or it's all about comparing. how good am I in the world? Um, yeah, and comparing, comparing themselves. Comparing, yeah. Um, and how anxiety-provoking that can be for people. Yeah. Um, just being in that space of constantly focused on their ego, um, rather than being able to let go of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think it's that's you know it's necessary, especially in this world, in order to engage. Uh, in a relational way with with one 's peer group, these days, you have to be able to put forward uh, yourself on instagram or what whatever it is and the the um, the social currency is so much there so it's it's requiring the ego in almost in a uh, in a more superficial way than has been required before i don 't even know if that 's true it 's just just turning it in another way but uh, once you get into a, a, a more real kind of relationship, then these other demands on the ego or on the self start to come into play. So it's not just about collecting the likes or get, being admired or making the initial connection. It's actually about going deeper. And we don't have that much guidance in the society for going deeper. I think that's why the, this renewed interest in the spiritual World that you know that started to perk up in the '60s in this country that I came in on the tail end of in the '70s that now wherever we are in time you know there's a renewed interest among my children's generation in some of the people who were first influencing me you know
2: we had a really nice experience recently. where Simone and I did an exercise where uh, we, went to a talk we went to a talk by yeah. Jack Cornfield. Oh, I thought you were
0: going to say that. as soon as you said the exercise and you were looking at her, I thought, oh no, it's like a Jack Cornfield oh, thing. Yes.
2: Where, <laughs> yes. where he Who made was you look, Where he made
0: you look at each yes. other
2: for several minutes. Yeah. Was it ten, ten minutes?
1: minutes? Wow, mm-hmm. it was ten minutes, and he had us first look at each other and observe. And of course, he and I were sort of smirkily smiling yeah. and trying not to laugh. Yeah. And then he had us kind of go through these different stages where we were looking at the person observing and then seeing them as a child, seeing them as an old person, yeah, our teacher, our teacher, our students, yeah, and you know what you're describing this sense of you know we, we get so caught up in how we look in comparison to the other, but then how the other person compares to us and it it was like this moment that was one of the most profound moments i've had. And I'm still trying to make sense of it.
2: We were in tears by Uh the end of this. I mean, it was so profound where I not
1: only lost sense of myself, but I also felt like I connected to this, Essence
2: of yeah. Sina, which yeah. was also an essence of me. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful.
2: And it was like everything else Faded fell away. away. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. It and was I'm like really, trying to think
1: about yeah. how that could be really helpful for, I think, individuals, but also in the context of relationships. Yeah. Because it really kind of looks beyond any of this sort of superficial yeah, that's content and noise yeah. and yeah. really sort of sees something
2: underneath. And I think it's, I mean, we've had a. Close relationship for for a while, but there was something about that experience that I some I think about it. Mm-hmm. Like I almost get tearful now when I think mm-hmm. about it because it really brought our connection deeper as friends and as business partners. And well, because you, you know, connected
0: on a soul level. Yeah, Jacks. Yeah. I've known Jack was one of the first people who, that I met in my. Path, you know coming into Buddhism so I've known him forever and I've seen him develop that like I never liked that staring at each other I thought it was like California and forced but I, but I can see he's really made something out of it where you're parting the veils you know the veils of ego the veils of personality the veils of identity you know and really connecting I mean you love each other already so it's the the bond is there, but really connecting on the soul level, I had when I first met uh, um, Ram Das, who you may or may not know about, but he was a psychology professor named Richard Alpert at Harvard who got kicked out for because of he and Timothy Leary were um, uh, doing more LSD than they were doing teaching and um, I met him after he 'd been kicked out and gone to India and met his guru and come back, changed his name, come back as Ramdas. Uh, but I met him in that early time I was telling you about. And I had a private meeting with him at, at Naropa the first summer when I was 21 years old. Uh, and I came in to see him and he was like a guru already, you know, long hair and wearing white and so on. And I sat down opposite him and he didn't say a word. And we just looked at each other. It was that, that, that's, Jack got this from him, I think. Uh, he just looked at me and I, I sat there and all my projections on him as you know professor and guru and teacher and all my insecurity my anxiety was all passing before me and we just kept looking and he stared at me and i'm very good at staring i do it too much even at my patients so i stared at him <laughs> i stared at him and he stared at me and it went on for about 5 or 5 or 10 minutes and finally he said uh, are you in there i'm in here far out <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it was that same you soul know, connection soul yeah. connection you know and um There's a thing in Buddhism where, you know, no self, no soul, so for a long time we didn't talk about soul, but I think it's okay to bring the word back because it defines something, it explains something that you you experience with each other. That's so great.
1: I think what also makes it so profound, especially in this day and age, is that we're so caught up in the opposite of that, you know, with... Instagram and Facebook and kind of putting together this image and con there's so much stimulation around us that we sort of lose touch with like what you said, that spiritual side. Yeah. So I think part of the tears is that it's this kind of profound connection, but part of it is also that it's, it's all this time that we're avoiding it and it, and it really feels like a loss. And when you connect with something so, um, it's sort of like connecting back home, and you, and yeah. it's sort of yeah, you realize yeah, that it's the really hard is, to access
2: that. Yeah,
0: well, it's scary to let go of all that stuff. That's that's uh, that's a lot of what happens in when you do meditation in, in an intensive way, because you're kind of peeling away the layers of yourself, you know, because you're learning to to sit in the place of of self-observation rather than to be identified with your thoughts or even your memories or, uh, you know, who you think you are. So it's all coming up and passing and, uh, before you. And as it passes before you, it sort of dissolves. But you're still there watching it all. And some, some, for some people, that's like such a wonderful experience, like it happened with the two of you looking at each other. For, at other times, it can be really scary because everything you thought you were you're not and then what are you yeah, and you don't really know yeah. what you are you know and you the thing is you don't have to know that's you really don't have to know you can just you can just feel it you know and it's there in the consciousness it's there in the love that kind of comes bubbling up if you let go of all the crap Uh, there really is a a soul level of loving awareness that uh, one can contact that's so reassuring.
2: Yeah, it was very comforting. Yeah. But also, yeah, the tears, in some ways, it also felt like it was discharging some Mm. of the anxiety. You know, even like the beginning of that kind of an exercise, there's a little bit of an awkwardness and laughing. and yeah. And then to be able to discharge some of that anxiety also felt like incredibly cathartic
0: yeah. in some way. Yeah.
1: It makes me wonder on a more concrete level how couples or even people that are single can integrate meditation or even, I mean, I, I hate to use the word mindfulness because that's yeah. so broad, but a way to kind of help foster healthier connections or kind of bring two people together.
0: I think it's up to the individuals to foster healthier connections and... Um, for for some of them mindfulness could be really helpful in giving them the tools to not as i was saying before act out their unhealthy impulses i think to to try to impose mindfulness on a couple uh if one or both of them aren't really into it you know i don't think it's the only vehicle uh, and i think that's sort of the mistake of the cognitive therapists you know like they like here's a workbook for how to uh, be less anxious and let's do it you know you have to do it this way I, I think what worked for me anyway was that I discovered mindfulness for myself and then had to put it to use in my marriage with my children with my patients you know but I had to figure out how to do that if uh, If Jack Cornfield or anyone else was telling me how to do it, I think I would have rebelled um, but they it's more they gave me the here you know like here here's why don't you pay a little more attention to what's happening inside of you, and that that might be of help and j- just that was enough
1: so how do you apply Buddhism and meditation and mindfulness to your own marriage
0: um uh, by hanging in there when <laughs> 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 when, uh, when it's most difficult and by not forgetting the love when I can't feel it uh, and by um, making room for uh, difficulty even for anger and for disagreement uh, by, uh, by seeing all of that as uh, potentially lucrative fertilizer uh, and also by uh, by not uh, withholding the love, In, you know, by no, by really um, uh, valuing the the love that's there and that, that emerges, you know, uh, anew each time that that one might think it's not there, then to feel it again is um, uh, uh, very sustaining. Uh, I would say, off the top of my head, I would say that that would be how. But
2: I'm also wondering if you could give an example of a patient you've worked with where they were acting out their um, ego mm-hmm. and caught up in their own ego and then through treatment had a different experience of themselves. Or someone where you saw some transformation in them.
0: Um, it's always nice if I can, uh, if if the transformation is really obvious, right. um, and I, I probably could pull uh, an example or two. I'll try. Or uh, even
2: a subtle transformation, because
0: yeah, no, I, it's not hard to find. Uh, but I don't want to give the impression that uh, that therapy necessarily works that way, where the uh, you, you know it's like oh, you throw a switch and uh, the person's better. But um, uh, I've had a, a, a few patients with uh, history, long histories in their adolescence of, of eating disorders, um, specifically in the person I'm thinking about, bulimia. Um, and she was uh, very unclear about where any of those impulses came from uh, the bulimic ones, you know. To bulimia is about like eating past the point when you're full, uh, and then throwing up basically to get rid of the uh, um, all the all the extra food that's been taken in. And I got her to pay attention to how she felt when she went home to her family of origin and was sitting at the dinner table when she her parents would be fighting or her her father i think drank too much and very kind of self preoccupied and she was uh, in any case at the dinner table basically feeling ignored and the uh, the impulse after dinner was over to come back to the kitchen and furtively eat a lot of stuff very quickly uh she was able to tie to those uh, uh, earlier feelings of being ignored at the dinner table and which had been, she was unaware of that before we started talking about it. she would just find herself, you know, late at night in the kitchen uh, y- you know, eating in that way and uh, once she could make that connection it opened up that space that I was referring to before, that a kind of space of self-contemplation, where the uh, uh, she had a better sense of who she was just before the impulses took her into the pantry, you know? And that gave her some room to begin to regulate it. So... Uh, you see that in all kinds of addictive behaviors, you know drugs, uh, sex, um, gambling, whatever it happens to be that the the triggers are not really known internally, and therapy or meditation therapy, really more than meditation can um, uh, help to illuminate what they might be, and then what we 've learned from meditation about how to be with uncomfortable feelings without Uh, pushing them away or without indulging them. That's sort of a core meditative strategy, you know. uh, And what
1: do you mean by indulging them?
0: uh, Indulging them would be um, if you're feeling angry at somebody, like hitting them uh, or saying a nasty thing or calling them a bad name or something. But, you know, to make room for the angry feelings, not to push them away, like, of course, people make you angry if you're searching for a parking space, you know, like not uh, jumping out and getting into a fight with the person, but that, that you know, not indulging, not, uh, w- we say in the Buddhist world, not clinging and not condemning, but uh, not going towards the feeling and not backing away from it so much. That So creating a, uh, uh, a transitional space, you know, to use the psychoanalytic language, uh, allowing it within the theater of the mind, these feelings to show themselves without you pushing them away, without you acting them out. That that's very useful in all kinds of relationships.
1: It feels very permission giving, just to sort of be in touch with how you yeah. naturally feel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's allowed. The the, the thing about a, a lot of what you naturally feel, if you uh, if you give it free rein. Uh, you 're going to end up hurting yourself, so it 's not about uh, simply giving permission but it, but it 's recognizing that feelings or thoughts in and of themselves actually have no power, so that if you can lodge yourself more in the uh, observing mind, like sort of like what the two of you were doing and when you were staring at each other, you, you know you if angry thoughts came you didn't you, you didn 't indulge them, if loving feelings came you didn 't rush towards each other you, you stayed you, you know in your space, but allowed everything to uh, to come and go, and that got you to such a deep place with each other, the where you didn 't need to. Uh, uh, You know, the tears themselves were the communication, you know, Um, and they, and they arose naturally. And even as you remember it, they come again. So, uh, and there's a communication there that you both feel. So that feels
1: very Buddhist.
0: (laughs) It's very Buddhist (laughs) (laughs) at its best. (laughs) Not the dry Buddhism, but the, but the moist Buddhism. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you mentioned that you don't like to impose Buddhist ideas onto your patients. Right,
0: I try not to. Yeah,
1: yeah so I, I'm I'm wondering you know, if a patient is drawn to you because of your Buddhist background, yeah. how you integrate that into your work.
0: Um, well, a lot of people, because I've written these books and so on, a lot of people are drawn to me because of my Buddhist background, thinking that maybe I, I hold the key to something. Um, so I especially if I feel like they might be thinking that I'm holding some sort of special key, I try as a therapist not to go there, uh, you, you know, not to feed that, but to just be as real as I can possibly be uh, uh, with them about who I am as another human being. Um, so that's going against the old-fashioned therapy thing of just being the blank screen and allowing the projections, you know, to so to then be worked with as transference and so on. I'm much more of a relational therapist mode where I I try to be a real person, and yes, I've I struggle with all of these things too. And if they're interested in meditation or mindfulness or Buddhism, uh, I'm happy to talk with them like I'm talking to you about uh, how it's made a difference for me and what I think its shortcomings are and what might be useful but that I don't think it's the panacea and I don't think it should be made to be a panacea and we still might have like real stuff to talk about about uh, what you're struggling with in your relationship or uh, with your parents or with your job or with your disease or whatever it is so at the so at the same time as I'm doing that trying to undercut whatever the projections are by being just a real person I also d- don't want to not hold out the you know what has helped me from buddhism that was actually the impulse for the advice not given book that I realized um It's a story I can tell you if we have time from talking to my father before he passed away. But I realized that I might have been holding back a little bit what was important to me from Buddhism from my patients, you know, because of not wanting to impose it on them, that maybe I was depriving them of something. So I've tried to be a little more fluid with it in recent years.
2: Would you share the story with us? Um,
0: My my father, uh, who I mentioned, I think at the beginning, was a physician and a scientist, and not into anything spiritual. Kind of um, uh, happy for me that I became a doctor and uh, uh, had my books uh, all uh, in a row in his office. You know, uh, proud of me, I would say. But we'd never had a, a any kind of discussion about anything that I would call spiritual. But he uh, got a brain tumor at the age of 84, That uh, the kind that John McCain has and that Ted Kennedy died of. Um, and it was on the non-dominant side of his brain, which meant he didn't know he had it and he could still function cognitively and he was working as a doctor and everything. Uh, but he got lost driving home one day from work, the same 15-minute drive. So it was on the non-dominant side of his brain that affected balance and direction. So by the time, you know, his getting lost was the indication that something weird was going on. And then he had a brain scan and they saw the tumor and it was too late to do anything about it. It had already spread. Um, So he knew that he was going to die soon, uh, as did I. And I realized sitting in my office one evening after my patients had left that I'd never really talked to him about what I maybe had learned from Buddhism about what might happen around death and how to use uh, meditation to sort of help yourself in that time. So I decided I would call him up on the phone and try to say something to him if he wanted to have the conversation, which I did. And he was very sweet about it. And he was like, sure, you know, we could, you know, tell me whatever you want to tell me. And I, so I needed to find language that wasn't specifically Buddhist um, because he wouldn't want that. So I said something like... um, Here's what maybe I've learned, what I I think I've learned, but I don't really know, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that feeling inside of you that doesn't seem to change, you know, about who you, who you were at 20 or 40 or 60 or 80, that you still sort of feel the same. Um, uh, and he said yeah and I said but that if you try to put your finger on that feeling it's sort of invisible you can't really find it and yet you know when you're like out for a walk or getting ready to go to sleep like you sort of know it's there I said what the Buddhists seem to say is that if you relax your mind into that space of who you've always been that you can kind of ride that feeling out when you die sort of like what you were we were talking about about the soul level you know um, but that's all I said to him, not, nothing about the soul. Um, and he was like, okay, darling, I'll try. Uh, uh and that was pretty much the last conversation that we had, but, uh, but I felt like at least it was, you know, at least we could have it and maybe it, maybe it gave him some, uh, some benefit. I don't know.
2: That's a beautiful story. Yeah. yeah.
0: It was an attempt. Yeah. 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 But I thought the 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 converse it was a real conversation, you know, where I got to say something about what uh, I hope I know.
1: Yeah. Um, it's also amazing, you know, on on death's door the kind of conversations that we can give and that we can receive. Mm-hmm. And you know who knows how much he took it in, but it sounds like that was there was something significant between you two. Actually, yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: Well, I think I had always been holding back a little bit because because uh, it was I was in such a different world from the one that he valued. But um, the fact that I gave myself permission, I think, to come forward a little bit and that he met me was very meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. I think there's a temptation when uh, our parents or uh, people we love are dying that we have to reconcile completely and or have that final conversation and I wouldn't want this story to lead people to that conclusion because mostly you you know you can't count on it and it might not be the most important thing sometimes just showing up is uh, more important but
2: well, I, I'm not,
1: that, not, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that description is so lovely because I think we can all grab hold of that. And, you know, even though the conversation was sparked by your father's father dying, I think that's something that's really good to remember in any stage of life is yeah. that we have this part of ourselves that seems to be stable when life can seem so unpredictable. And I think when, you know, we've been talking about relationships, being single and being in a relationship to to remind yourself of that can be, um, I think, really important.
0: Well, I think in my therapy work, I, I really try not to work with couples because it's so hard to work with couples. <laughs> uh, and I always take sides, uh, <laughs> which you're not supposed to do. But when I do have couples uh, who uh, make, it, uh, make it through my defenses um, into the office, one of the things I've really seen is how often people talk past each other mm-hmm. because they want to make their points. Um, and... I'm, what, what I find myself doing now is trying to get people to back off of the points they're trying to make uh, so that they can really hear each other. Or I think what, what I'm, the reason I'm thinking about this is so that each individual can speak in a way that's sort of like how I was trying to talk to my father. Like, like this is just what I think. And I'm not really trying to impose it on you, but I just want to say how it feels to me, you, you know. Not and trying to win something. Not trying to win something, yeah. Or you, you know, or um, change the other person's mind, you know, so that they'll see it the way you see it. Uh, but just floating how you see it is, you know, is especially for couples who may be seeing things completely differently and have to, but where they where the communication isn't happening is that they're not willing to accept without uh, uh, clinging or condemning uh, the other person's point of view, that that uh, when I can successfully let that happen, then a real communication takes place. And that's, that takes some of the negative energy out of the room.
2: So do you have any final advice for um, people in long-term relationships about how to sustain... Intimacy and connection.
0: Um, sex is really important, <laughs> I would say. So don't give up on it if you uh, if you haven't already. Uh, it's hard to get it back when you uh, uh, when you totally let it go. Uh, and I don't think I don't. I've seen couples where it's not the most important linking thing. So I don't think you have to think that it is. But uh, I think it's more difficult without it.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure.
2: Hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening. We also want to thank Point in Passing for their original music and website design. Be sure to subscribe to Lovelink on iTunes and leave us a review. And check out our upcoming summer workshops for singles and couples on lovelink.co. See you next time. Mm